In the Trauma-Informed Education podcast, you can get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to our Trauma-Informed PBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. That's tipbs.com. Welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. What is the real impact of an educational leader on a school? Trauma-informed practices offer principles a framework to think about the needs of the student, as well as those of the teachers and the broader community. When implemented with diligence, courage and collaboration, a trauma-informed approach to leadership can transform schools to being inclusive and compassionate communities of practice. But is there evidence of such methods actually working? Today we speak with Jessica Griffin, the principal of Logan Avenue Elementary in Emporia, Kansas. Jessica has taught at the primary level and served as an instructional coach. She holds licensure in elementary education special education, teaching English as a second language, and building level leadership, all from Emporia State University. She has presented at the local and state level on a variety of topics, including the implementation of trauma-responsive care within the school setting. Jessica will be interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy, and me. I hope you find this interview useful. Hi everyone and welcome to Trauma Informed Education. Um, my name is Dr. Givin Krishnamurthy and I'm here as always with Dr. Kay A. Hi Kay. Hi Givin, how are you today? <laughs> good, thank you. Um, good. And we're here today with um, Jessica. Hi Jessica, thank you for joining us here. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries. Well, we might just jump right into it um, and we might um, just Maybe get you to tell us a little bit about yourself, Jessica, just about your background and what led you to becoming an educator. Perfect. Yeah, it's a good place to start. Um, so I actually have been in the public school systems here in Kansas for 18 years as a certified employee. So I started my journey um, as a student teacher here at Logan Avenue Elementary School and I student taught in special education and then also in a regular third grade classroom. And then after graduating, I began teaching here at Logan Avenue, and I was hired as a first and second grade looping teacher. And I did that for about seven years, um, and then felt like it was kind of time to spread my wings a little bit and help others. And so I became an instructional coach at our school, and I worked with teachers um, kindergarten to fourth grade. And during that time, too, I also decided it was probably about time to start a master's degree and wanted to help even bigger than I could as an instructional coach. And so I became a principal at that point in time and I went to a fifth grade center and I worked there for three years and then actually transitioned back to the school where I student taught, where I taught and was an instructional coach as their principal. And so I've been here for seven years now in this role. Um, I'm also ESL endorsed as well as special education certified. 
um, have really felt called from the time I was in college to serve, um, and in particular those who maybe have more challenges in their learning, um, students with like special education needs or students who have English as a second language as a need, and so really felt like my purpose um, really is just to serve and kind of champion for the underdog, and so that's where I'm at right now and kind of what led me to where I, where I am. That's really interesting. You've come full circle. <laughs> You've left and come back. Yes. Um, 15 of uh, my 18 years have been here. So. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Did you want to tell us a little bit about Logan Avenue, Jessica, and just set the context for the school? Sure. I would tell you, we have um, hands down the best school family, I think, that I've ever had the opportunity of working with. Um, our students are amazing. Our staff are amazing. Our families um, are also amazing. We are a relatively small school for our community. So there are six elementary schools in our community and we are one of the smaller ones. We're a two section school. So we have kindergarten through fifth grade now in our building, um, two sections of each of those grade levels. And then um, we're about 250 students and so not terribly large. Um, we have a very diverse population. Our school building is actually located between two of the um, lowest income housing units in our community. And so we have a really high population of students who are on free lunches. We bounce around 70 to 85% students that are coming to us from um, that type of home environment. And then we have about 60% students um, that are of Hispanic origin and 30% that are ELL or English as a second language learners. Um, our special education population is, I, I feel like, is a little bit higher than I would like to see it right now. So we have about 35 students who are identified um, for special education. Um, my building also is the landing base for a specialized program in our special education cooperative that works with students who have emotional disturbance. So I am the principal over that program as well. Um, we have, like I said, just an outstanding group of people that come together every day to serve our kids and our parents. Um, we added a um, grant position this year called Communities in Schools, and we have a site coordinator through that that helps provide tons of resources for families. So anything from, hey, if you need laundry soap or if you need dish soap or shoes or you need help getting your kiddo to a medical appointment, we don't want any of those obstacles to stand in our family's ways. So we work really hard to help help them meet the needs that they have within their home, not just here in the school setting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, I think just from those programs itself, it tells us a little bit about some of those challenges the students face at the school. Uh, what, what are some of the, I mean, it's interesting because you were a teacher at the school and then the principal. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, I was just curious about how, um, your perceptions of some of the challenges in the school may have been different or the same. Um, so what are the challenges at the moment for the students, Jessica? Um, you know, I feel like our children, we talk about ACE um, information, ACE scores for our children, and we say, you know, you look at our building and our teachers, you know, attentively figure ACE scores that when you look at Logan Avenue, about 80% of our kiddos are going to have an ACE of three or higher. And so I feel like the um, trauma that they live in, the poverty and the, the chronic stress that they're under is mm -hmm. very tremendous, you know, and, um, you know, I feel like our families, they're not anti-education at all, but they're very pro-survival. So our kids are very brilliant in the way that they problem solve and that they know how to figure things out. 
but I do feel like they come to school with a lot of um, worry in their hearts a lot of days, and that can definitely get in the way of their ability to really function and be able to take in all the rich instruction that's being provided. And so, you know, years ago, um, I know that it was there. I don't think that we saw it. And I know that even in my seven years coming back here as principal, um, there maybe were one or two kids in a classroom that would have a hard time that I'd be called to help with. And mm -hmm. by years three and four here, I was being called frequently. My counselor was being called frequently. The behaviors were escalating. So moving from maybe seeing defiance, like I'm not going to line up or I'm not going to leave the classroom, to now I'm tipping over chairs or I'm throwing things or destroying things or I'm, I'm physically being aggressive towards others. And about three years ago was kind of where I hit my wall as an administrator thinking, I don't know what to do because everything that's in my toolbox that I was trained as a teacher, as a special education provider, that toolbox wasn't working. Um, the rewards and the punishments weren't working. Um, the traditional systems we had in place, I feel like we're failing our kids and making the kids not feel good about school and parents didn't feel good about what we were doing at school. And I know that it was hard on our staff too. And so that's kind of the process I think that led me to start looking for. There's got to be some kind of answer. There's got to be something else out there. And, um, in reading Ross Green's work, that's where I first um, kind of started saying, hey, wait, there's something else happening here. And I was on his website and I clicked on, I think it was a parent advocacy link, and it took me to Dr. Becky Bailey's work with Conscious Discipline. And that changed my perspective. I ordered her book and I spent an entire month reading and watching videos and learning everything I could learn because I was like, oh my gosh, these are my babies. Like this is what's happening. And there's science behind what's happening. And it's not that they're trying to make anybody's life difficult and it's not that they don't want to do well. And so all of a sudden I had so much hope in my heart about there could be a different way. We can learn a different way. Um, and so the study really began from there and has shifted everything in my world. And I know my staff's eyes too, about the challenges that our kids are bringing in with them. Um, it, when you can look at it being grounded in science and knowing that there are different ways that we can respond then that changed the game forever for us. Yeah, um, I, I'll let Kay jump in in a minute. But I was just wondering about um, th that period just before you had stumbled across all this fantastic material. And it sounded like a really difficult time. Um, and it's very easy, I'd imagine, for people to kind of throw up their hands and just blame the students or blame the families or um, have quite kind of prejudicial beliefs around um, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds or whatever it is. Uh, what was it for you that propelled you to kind of actually go looking for these answers? And, uh, you know, I'm sure you had people in the community, you know, in the school community who felt like that. And how did you deal with that, Jessica? Well, I, you know, there is like one there was a moment in time and there was a lot that year. There were a lot of moments where I was like, what in the world? Like I just hadn't seen this level of behavior and mm -hmm. I hadn't seen kids that it's like, they just, they didn't respond to, or if they did respond to a reward system, it was very short lived. And then it's like, okay, well mm -hmm. that doesn't work anymore. And then we're on to the next thing, or what are you going to give me in order for me to do this? And, um, but there was one moment that I think will forever be in my brain. And I was in the lobby with the first grade boy and um, we had had to go into lockdown. He'd destroyed his classroom. He'd run through the building. He'd flipped a very heavy table in our front lobby. Mm -hmm. 
and I was trying to talk with him and he picked up the wooden door stop that's there to hold the office door open and he threw it at my head with such force you know it bounced off the wall that was behind me and and that moment I just was like I I don't know what I'm doing but I can't keep doing this job in this way it's not working for me and so I was like Jessica you have a choice you can either choose to try to figure out a new way or you're going to have to leave the profession. And that's where I was three years ago. And I think unfortunately for a lot of teachers, um, I don't know in Australia, but for sure <laughs> here in Kansas, um, that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness about how do I make this better and um, is pretty overwhelming. And I feel like we're losing people to burnout and to those very reasons because they they don't know the ways that we were raised um, as children and that we have parented and that you're taught in pre-service teacher prep programs is not preparing you for the level of um, behavior and the challenges that our little people are facing to be able to come to work every day and know how to help them. Mm. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that story. Cause I think that sense of helplessness is, is often the tipping point often for people to kind of feel like, you know, they've had enough in the profession. Um, Kay, did you have any questions for Jessica just about Logan Avenue or some of the interventions she's talked about? I was just going to ask Jess, I guess this is probably part of the next question, but um, so how, like, practically, how did you start when you're at that point where that, um, you know, little guy's flipped his lid and thrown stuff um, and you've done all that reading? How did you physically broach the subject of shifting, <laughs> shifting thinking in mm -hmm. a school? Because, you, I mean, t our teachers are very similar. <clears throat> many, we lose many, many good teachers and... Um, principals like yourself have you know points in their career like like you have where they just go mm -hmm. oh, I can't do this I don't know what to do and um and that's okay so but then how do you get how do you start to say what we've all known to be true is no longer valid so we are going to do something very very different while you're mm -hmm. stressed up to the eyeballs with people <laughs> throwing door stops at you you know mm -hmm. how do you how did you start um so that's a great question and you know for me it started in june that year when i felt like i had the headspace finally to stop being so reactive and in my own survival state um, to do the reading, to do the thinking. And as I was doing that, I started, as I learned, was able to draw some parallels between new ways of doing things and existing thinking. Um, and when I was able to do that, then I felt like it was time to meet with my leadership teams within my school. So I pulled in what we call our building leadership team. And at that point in time, our positive behavior support team. So kind of the key um, communicators within my school and started to share with them my reading. And I had great big anchor charts posted everywhere because that's how my brain works and um, saying, here's some things that align to things that we've done. Here are things that are totally new and here's where we might go with this. So really painting the why first. And so we talked about, we looked at some collective efficacy data um, on our staff. So every spring I give the collective efficacy survey to my staff. And we reviewed that and it showed that we had 50% of teachers who didn't believe they could motivate kids. They 50% of our staff didn't believe that they had the tools to be successful helping the most students with the most challenges. 
I was like, guys, that's a problem. If half of our teachers are feeling like they can't do any, what, what are we, what disservice are we doing to these children? And then we also looked at all of our um, call data on kids. So like the number of times we're being called and like the system that we're using, how effective is it? Like how effective is it for the teachers? How effective is it for our kids right now? And when they were able to look at the data and go, hmm, yeah, you're right, it, it really isn't. Then that was a nice segue for me to bring in all the wall charts and the thinking and to kind of paint the picture that, you know, there might be another way, but it's probably gonna be pretty scary. And I can't tell you all the answers right now because I don't know, because I'm gonna learn with you, but would you be willing to go on a different journey with me? Um, and I shared Becky Bailey's book. I bought a copy for everybody. Um, and they started reading that during the month of July. And by the end of July, it was like, yes, we're in, let's do this. And so from that point then, um, bought more books <laughs> for everybody on staff. So, I mean, the, you know, cooks, custodians, teachers, aides, secretaries, um, all the teachers, um, we use some of our Title I federal money to do that. And we organized book study meetings that we were going to hold throughout the next school year where we met once a month and we reviewed chapters. We watched different video clips. Um, I was thankfully connected to another administrator um, in Derby, Kansas, which is down in the Wichita area. Um, his name is James Moffitt. And at, right before school started, you know, we put all these plans in place and we were moving away from a safe seat buddy room office or whether you're clipping down or pulling cards or whatever you're doing. Like we said, we're not going to do that anymore. And I had kind of like this sinking feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm, this is a crazy idea. I don't know if I led people down the right road. And I think it was a God moment where then, you know, I had this email um, from our assistant superintendent about this principal in Derby who had done something very similar. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I'm not crazy. Like I have to go meet this person. So I connected with him um, in September of that school year. And he was the one that really introduced me to the ACEs research and the science there. Um, and then Jim Sporleader's work and um, our staff watched Paper Tigers in October. And that also, I think, kind of set the the stage and reviewed the ACEs information. And I feel like that was really a tipping point for us mm -hmm. just because it's hard to argue with science. You can't argue with the neuroscience of what's happening in the brain and um, how the trauma and how chronic stress and how poverty, all those pieces are impacting their development. And then, like I said, the hopeful part of that is now that we know that and we're recognizing the behavior as a form of communication, then we're able to better respond on our end. And so we literally then spent that first year, like I said, we book studied, we problem solved, um, a lot of what I present on is in detail like that process because it was so taxing and there was so much and it's such a huge paradigm shift for people to see mm -hmm. behavior as a form of communication and to view those deficits like we do view academic deficits. You know, and like when we have a child that struggles to read, we don't put them in the hall. We don't send them to in-school suspension. We don't shame them. You know, we help, we wrap support around them. We give them more time, attention, so why would we not be doing the same thing if they struggle with behavior? Why would we not be wrapping our arms around them and loving them and helping them problem solve to help rewire some of those pathways in the brain? Yeah, that's great. And what's nice about that story too, Jessica, is that, um, that you've taken people on that journey. And I think that helps people see that to helps them make connections with the things they were already doing that were working as well, I'd imagine. Um, how, how do you explain what 
uh, you know, just t- pulling on that analogy, how would you explain what a trauma-informed approach is mm-hmm. in education? You know, how is it different from anything mm-hmm. they were doing before? What is your take on that? So I love that question because actually um, at, in March, my student support specialist, my counselor and I were talking about this, like, how do you give a 30-second elevator speech about trauma-informed care in schools to somebody? You know, like, I could talk for like three or four days easily. I always tell people, like, you know, stop me. I'm on my soapbox. Um And what we, you know, and having that conversation and trying to, like, again, explain to parents, too, what looks different is we are a problem-solving, love-based environment. We are not a traditional system based on fear and compliance. Mm -hmm. And I feel that the majority of our schools are set up on that very traditional model of fear and compliance, and you will do what I say because I said because I'm the adult. Not because intrinsically it's the right thing to do or because I have empathy or connection to you. And so we really focus on safety. We focus on connection with other students. We focus on hope. Um, we've done a lot with Shane Lopez's work with our kids and teaching about, again, pathways and goal setting. And, you know, you have the power inside of yourself to rewrite your story. This story where you are right now doesn't have to be your story for forever. And we will be there with you. You know, we are there with you. We love you regardless. There's nothing you're going to do is going to make us not love you. And I think that first year was so hard because I think the kids kind of were like, whoa, like we don't know what to do. Like all the adults are acting very different. And this year is year two for us. And, you know, it's just the climate and culture shift is huge because it's also the adult having to realize I have to work on me first. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to compose and calm before I can download calm or help anyone else in a situation. And once we do that, we're better able to access our executive state to help that child in that moment. And I think the kids, they are seeing us model that mm-hmm. in our interactions with each other and in interactions with the other children. And then the children are picking up on that. And so um, the climate and culture shift has been huge in a two year time period in our school. And, you know, it's funny when people come in to visit, it comes up, you know, they're like this mm-hmm. just feels like home. Like everybody here is just so, and we know that not every day at home in our family, is a 10, you know, so there are some rough times, but we still love you regardless, you know, and so having our kids really know we are here to help you and we love you is bottom line. Yeah, that's great. And sometimes I think you can feel it when you walk into a school. I think, you know, people talk about school climate and things like that. Kay and I were at a school the other day and and she was commenting on how calmer it all felt from the last (laughs) time she was there. Um, what are some practical things that you've been doing at the school at the moment, Jessica? You talked about the specialized programs and the um, uh, community programs as well, community manager program. Could you talk us through some of the practical things you did for the school to be more trauma-informed? Yes. Yeah, so um, we do a lot, and I think that's the hard part to um, kind of put a bubble around. But, you know, we definitely focus, like I said, on safety and connection. And so there are things that we do every day within our school. Um, We have a morning message. I lead that. Um, Every Monday morning, we gather together as a school family, and we have all school family assemblies. Um, The first Monday of the month, we do things um, during that assembly that's a little bit longer. So all students are given the opportunity throughout the school year to share a celebration with their school family. And it can be anything personal. It can be school related. It's up to them. Um, And then we also celebrate birthdays. We celebrate new people to our school family, students and staff. And then we have a lesson that aligns with the self-regulation skills that we're working on during that month in particular. And then each week, um, we've set an activity to unite us. 
a focus area. So like, for example, this week we're focusing again on hope and goal setting and pathways. And so every morning when I leave the message, I talk through those pieces and then uh, we created a school family time building wide. So our day doesn't start academically. Our day starts with connection. So it starts with my announcement and then teachers have time where they can do um, the peace process in a classroom meeting where they can do an activity related to hope or goal setting. Um, we also have a safekeeper ritual that guides everything that we do. And so we talk about our job at school is to keep it safe. And that's everybody's job. It's not just Mrs. Griffin's job. It's not just the teacher's job. Everybody has the job to help keep our school safe. And we talk about being safe with our words and our bodies. And then our other job is to learn. And so that guides everything we do. You know, are we being safe and are we learning? Are you being helpful? Or are you being hurtful? Um, so we do a lot of those things throughout the day, and then we really work to notice and focus on the positive things, so the behavior that you want. So you don't hear people say, no running in the hall. We say walking feet, just like this, and then we model that for them. Um, and so a lot of teaching all throughout the day, if that makes sense, um, on practices. I Today we had a fire drill. We were coming back in from the fire drill, and there was a, a class going to recess, and a little boy he had lifted the lid to the equipment to get a ball out to take on the playground. A little girl's arm was in there and he was in such a hurry to get outside. He let the thing go and it fell down on her arm and you know, she's crying and he's kind of like, <gasps> didn't even realize. And it was in that moment where I was able to say to a student, I was like, Oh my goodness. I was like, you wanted to get a ball and get outside very quickly. And in the meantime, the lid fell on so-and-so's arm. I said, like, do you see that she is hurt? And he was like, it was an accident. And, you know, we say, I know that was an oop. So next time, can you set it down carefully just like this? So making sure to give kids grace and taking time to teach. And, you know, I could just be like, oh, look what you did. You made that person feel horrible. You need to go to the office or sit out of recess. And we don't operate like that anymore. Um, you know, we'd never take away recess. That is not even a negotiable consequence ever for a child. And so we really focus too on like consequences being about problem solving um, and an opportunity to teach. You know, that's what discipline is. It's an opportunity to teach. Um, it's not about punishment. And so I feel like there's a lot of things day to day. I'm probably forgetting um, greetings. We do daily greetings in the classroom um, to build that safety and connection. Well wishing is another huge part of our day. And that has really been eye-opening so it allows both students and staff the opportunity to say like this is heavy and it's on my heart today mm -hmm. and I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm going to share that with my peers and um, just ask for if you're a praying type you can pray if you're not just send a positive breath into the world for that person and that also helps us during times of crisis so if a student is really struggling we've mm -hmm. taken away the scary or the stigma about that and the, the children recognize oh so-and-so is really having a hard time right now. We should send that person a well wish. And it just brings calm to that situation. So I feel like there are many day-to-day -day things that we have in place that help make that whole run much more smoothly. And the building, again, that's that calm feeling. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And uh, I'll get Kai to jump in if she had any questions. But I was just thinking about, um, you know, the whole idea of slowing down and teaching kids that stuff. And, um, how um, it's, it sounds simple, but it's very time consuming and needs you to be quite mindful really in many ways. Um, and, it, and it's not something you get trained in. It's not something that comes naturally uh, for the, a lot of the adults. How, how, how did you um, reinforce that sort of behavior amongst the staff, um, Jessica? And, and what were some of the kind of things you were up against initially when you were trying to introduce these things? 
Well, initially, I think that there were definitely, there was, you, you always have the early adopters. The ones that are like, yes, yeah. let's go. We so much <laughs> Um, and then I definitely have some that were the laggards that were back when I don't think so. Um, I'll wait and see how it goes for everybody else. Um, and then I had some that, you know, like they were the ones throwing the rocks in your boat, like <laughs> trying to, see what's <laughs> you know, but I think about where they were on their own journey. Um, and like I said, it starts with self first and it's really hard to look at your own ACE information. It's hard to identify what are my personal triggers and how do I cope when I'm triggered as an adult and how could I pass, pass on a healthier way of coping to um, children? Because I think that typically in schools, we feel like we pretty much have it together and we're educated and, you know, we're, we're pretty composed, you know, and I always tell my teachers, I try to give lots of analogies like, you know, okay, well then what happens when somebody cuts you off in traffic? How do you respond? And they all are like, Oh yeah. And they laugh, you know, ha ha ha. And I'm like, but what we just did is we set an example for our own child that's sitting in the backseat of the car that it's okay for mommy to react that way when something doesn't go my way. You know, that's no different than the child that is having like, they didn't get the yellow crown. And so this is how mm -hmm. they are able to cope or their window for tolerance is so tiny because they're, they're always in the survival. Their clackers always go in state. And so the fact that they didn't get the yellow crayon is, doesn't seem like a big thing to us, but it's huge to them. And so along the way, I try to um, provide examples for staff of things like that in our day-to-day -day adult life. And it's funny because we're to the point now I can say to them, like, you know, we expect things out of our children that we as adults aren't even doing and we're not doing well. How fair is that to expect a six, seven, eight, nine, or 10-year-old to do mm. things that you don't do? You know, like, be quiet. Be quiet all the time. I'm like, when you go to a staff meeting or you go to a day of professional learning, <laughs> you sit there quietly all day. When you go to the bathroom with your girlfriends, do you, are you quiet in the bathroom? When you go to lunch, do you not talk to your friends? Like, and then they're always just kind of like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that's what we're doing to kids. So let's be realistic about what the expectation is. Let's give them grace because they are six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old. And a lot of them, like I said, coming in and they're already super heightened. So I think just providing opportunities to remind staff or relate to themselves help bring most folks along. Not everybody. I will say I've lost some folks along the way because they just couldn't get behind the change and that was okay too because that's where they are in their journey and I want them to be happy in their workplace um, and what they're doing um, and I, I don't really like to have rocks thrown in our boat I don't want to <laughs> sink or have anybody else sink in the process of yeah that's great Kay did you have any questions or comments for Jessica I was just thinking how again from that um, listening to what you were saying Jess how critical the fact that a principal gives you permission to have space to do the connections to do the hope to do mm -hmm. all of that with with the um you know such pressure um kansas and australia are the same such pressure on the data and the literacy and numeracy data and now we've got uh, added emphasis here on science data and and um in, so you've got all of that um, next week we've got our um, national testing that's coming up and and you, and it's you you feel like you were saying how you you give analogies to your teachers about their own behavior and 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 you feel really quite quite frightened as a teacher and you feel a little bit sick in the tummy what if my kids don't do well mm -hmm. um, and when you've got all of that driving you all the time for somebody to then say well look don't start on maths this morning think talk about hope and connection and and making them safe you really need the security of the principal's commitment 
as a teacher to actually believe that it's going to be okay if I do this. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is such a critical um, strategy with all of the reading that people like you, yourself in a principal's job do, all of the reading that you do and all of that stuff and all of your lovely charts. But if the teachers don't feel safe to take the risk of not doing the mm-hmm. academics and putting that emphasis on, they just they just can't shift. Mm-hmm. They just they just can't do it. And it, it's lovely to hear that. Um, yeah, basically, for it to be successful, you need to build from that platform up because you, you really need permission as a classroom teacher to to really know that it's okay and the principal. Yes, it is okay. Keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, not thinking, looking over this over your shoulder, thinking I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm doing the wrong thing. You know. Um, yeah. So that that that's that's wonderful. That's something that um, is 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 quite a common thread. And I think it's it definitely is the the key to success or not as a whole school. Well, and I agree. And I, you know, we've just been having this conversation a lot within our own district and, you know, looking at our data, our state assessment data just rolled in um, this last week. And I feel like sometimes I'm kind of banging my head against the wall because I, I, you know, what I see happening is teachers are working harder than ever. They're using best practice. They're using research-based materials. Our needle isn't moving. And in fact, it's going the other direction. And we've got tier two and tier three services and, you know, RTI and kids are getting more support academically, but yet we're still not moving forward. And so I don't know how many times I feel like in the last two years I've said, what's the one thing we haven't changed? Yes. We haven't changed how we manage the classroom. We haven't changed that piece at all. We haven't looked at social emotional learning. It's very traditional. I'm like, that's the one rock we haven't picked up. We haven't looked under and we haven't been brave enough to try something different because no. what if we fail? What if it is even worse? And I'm so excited because like right now when our data came in, I'm like, you know, we're two years in and my third graders who've had the most exposure to this shift and change scored phenomenally, you know, and I was like, I kept telling teachers, I don't care about the test. I don't care about the test. Like we, yeah. we don't take care of the social emotional piece. We can have the most beautiful instruction in the world laid out and they're not going to be able to access it. We've got to get them to a point of truly feeling safe. Like that safety piece is huge and connected to each other, to their teachers, that we are a family. And, you know, you work hard for your family and you're protective of your family and you're loyal to your family and they'll do things for family they won't do for us. So it's like, we've got to create that. And it is, it is panning out, you know, both our behavior and our um, academic data are going and the trend that we want so i'm excited mm. to see that it is starting to to pay off yeah excellent because that was my next question i was going to say in this world of data-driven practice uh, have you um seen you know a lot less call outs have you seen a lot less mm. in school suspensions have you you know and has your which we all i think people like ourselves all knew deep down that the data would go up when we actually did what we knew to be <laughs> the right thing to do, um, whether your data actually, yeah, is making a significant improvement because that's been the case here for a lot of teachers who are brave enough to do what you're doing against mm-hmm. the system. And, you know, that is, I mean, it's it, there has been a huge shift. Oh, my gosh, our behaviour data. So we started tracking um, just our crisis prevention calls in um, – 
let's see, it was October of last school year, we had about 130 some calls in our building. And so if we get a call, that means behavior is so um, intense that teacher can either A, no longer teach because it's so disruptive or it's unsafe to themselves and others. Um, so we had over 130 of those calls. And this last October, we had 15. So, you know, the shift is huge. I, I can't even tell you. And the calls, like last year, the calls we were getting were a lot of safety calls. So kids in the red, in the survival state of their brain. Um, and so it just, it was very intense. This year, there's been a shift and we're not getting the safety calls. We have more, we call them our blue calls to match the emotional state of the brain. Um, we're getting those calls where it's just like, you know, I'm having a really rough time. I can't get it together. I need time away. Um, I need maybe a snack. Basic needs are huge for our kids. Food and sleep. Oh my goodness. I don't know how much money I spent on granola bars and um, cheese sticks this year, but if that's what it takes. Um, and so I think that those pieces are all looking very good. Our collective efficacy data, that survey I mentioned for our teachers at the end of year one, like I said, the previous year, we'd had like 50% of the teachers who actually thought, you know, the kids were motivated and 50% didn't feel like they had the tools to do the job. And this last year we were up to 95%. And so that, you know, that 5% that was there was one teacher that didn't feel that kids were motivated or didn't feel that they had the right tools in their toolbox. So it's not perfect every day. Every day is not a 10, but what that data tells me is too that teachers are feeling like they actually do have tools in their toolbox where three years ago, you know, I was looking at a, a first year teacher who was teaching first grade with the little guy that threw the doorstop at me. And I was like, I don't know how you come to school every day. Like, I don't even know, this isn't how it should be. And the sad thing is, as your leader, I feel like I can't help you. And that was really disheartening. And, you know, I went to a conference and I had somebody say that we needed to learn how to be Cognitive behavioral therapist. That's what he told me. And I was like, well, that's not realistic right now. So I, you know, teachers are going to school to do that. But, you know, unfortunately, I'm like, you know, I think some of the folks who have left, it's like, you know, that we didn't choose mental health as our profession. You know, teachers went into school to teach because they wanted to teach the how to read or how to do math or I love science or but mental health has chosen us. This is the state of the state right now. And so we have a choice. We can either choose to change with that and learn and grow as professionals or I honestly feel like you have to choose to leave then because you're not helping the cause you're not making our, our world our country um, our community any stronger if you're not willing to start to look at the behavior like I said as communication and figure out how do I help you how do I support you instead of judging um, the behavior or the parent or blaming what's happening and thinking about yeah. your analogies with, you know, that you make with your teachers, I was just thinking as you were talking, heaven forbid if our top surgeons and medical people stopped learning and didn't look for new ways of dealing with the problem that's in front of them to solve that problem for us, it's, it's no different. You know, I mean, if the client goes in with, you know, a heart condition and the doctor's chosen not to look at the, the way that's best to help person survive we'd be in serious serious trouble wouldn't we you know so mm -hmm. so as a teacher if this like you say if mental health has chosen us well it's part of your profession at mm -hmm. the moment and if you're going to serve the kiddos that really need well you don't really have a choice no there is no, and that's what I'm like <laughs> isn't it I'm like how exciting is that at the same yeah, time it's like terrific. this is such a huge has the potential to be such a huge impact and I think sometimes that's my frustration educationally I'm like 
why are we just learning about this right now? Like, why isn't this spreading like wildfire? You know, why isn't it in teacher service, you know, pre-prep programs? Like, we, we've got to do a better job of spreading the word. And so you know, every opportunity I get, I'm like, yes, let me tell you about this. My sister, my dad, and my mom, you know, it's anybody that will listen. I'm like, you need to know there's a reason. And we actually, there's hope. Like, there's, we can respond, and we're making it happen at our school. And I think that's the exciting thing is just seeing the adults change. Yes. And seeing then how the children respond and the, even the parents and the families, it's like they're sharing things with us they would have probably never shared before, but they really do. They feel safe and connected and know that we love their kid and we're here to help. Mm. And, and I was just going to comment on that, Jessica, when you were talking about the mental health piece, that it really pushes us to really be the best that we can be, really, isn't it? It's best practice mm -hmm. in practice almost. Um, and I wondered if you could share any stories about, um, you know, students um, who've kind of progressed through the school and changed, but also the kind of impact it's had on yourself or the teachers in terms of how they've grown from the experience. Absolutely. Um, I can think of several that um, I'm going to tell you about a little guy, a little boy that's in third grade now this year. And since he's come to us, um, you know, in kindergarten and in first grade, we were not using trauma sensitive practices in our building. We were very traditional. Um, and he would frequently elope from his classroom. He would destroy his own property. I don't know how many pairs of glasses would get broken. Um, Lunchtime was horrible for him. He would go in the cafeteria. Shoes would come off. He'd chuck shoes. He'd be running. Um, and, you know, I don't know how many ISSs that little person sat in, how many times I called parents um, and mom is in tears. And when we made the shift last school year, um, we started tracking his behavior. We started tracking when we were getting calls and we started asking why, like what's happening during that section of the day that his behavior is telling us something. So what is it? Um, and we're able to identify like specials is what we call them. So like PE, music, library, art, those times a day are very, very challenging for him. There's a lot of transition and you're moving between several teachers at a time. Um, lunch, like I said, was a time where we like, we know it's coming. So what are we going to do differently in order to help him? And so started talking with him specifically about being able to identify what brain state he's in, being able to identify and articulate what emotion that is. And then what does it feel like? Where do you start to feel that? And he would be like, I know it in my hands. Like, I can start to feel it in my hands. And if you watch him, you'll see his fingers start to go. The shirt comes up. He starts chewing on the collar of his shirt. You know, you can just imagine this little person. And there's all this anxiety. And then it's just like a pot that boils. He's like, and then it's too much and I just have to go. And so when we talk with him about what would help you, like when that feeling's starting to come, what is going to help you? He's like, I just need to run. I just need to go. He's a great jump roper too. He's brilliant in that way of physical activity. Not like myself, but um, anyway, so we put in plans for him to have scheduled sensory release times where it's like, okay, so then let's, and you know, then there was pushback because there was some staff that said, mm -hmm. well, you know, he acted out. Now you're just letting him go jump rope or you're mm -hmm. just letting him jump on the trampoline or if it's a nice day, even in the winter, if he says that he needs to run, he comes to our office, one of us puts on our coat, we go outside and the little guy runs back and forth from the building to the fence line until he is pooped, he's tuckered out. But that pot that's always simmering for him, that helps bring that boil back down to a simmer instead of that raging boil. And then we don't break the glasses, we're not throwing the shoes. And he's able to go run for three minutes and then come back in and rejoin his third grade class this year and access his learning. Um, Academically, he's progressed more. I'm like, is social emotionally he's progressed? 
We're not seeing the baby voice. We're not seeing any of those behaviors anymore. And it's, you know, every little person that I thought about, like, you know, we had another one that came in from um, another city, from Kansas City, moved in. And same kind of thing. It was like the previous school, OSS, OSS, out of school suspension, in school suspension. Um, and again, we just started looking at the behavior. When is it happening? Why is it happening? What is he telling us? What does he need during that time? And then we're able to teach them when they're in that executive state and the calm about what's happening inside of them and that let us help you when you get to this point. And it's just been phenomenal. And um, I think for like staff and myself, it's funny when we talk about it and we reflect, you know, we get together at least once a month for formal learning time together. Um, the changes in our personal lives have been huge. You know, you'll hear people talk about, I'm a better mother or I'm a better wife. And I know personally, I'm both of those. I have a 14-year-old daughter who, who sometimes, you know, <laughs> we kind of go head to head. And, um, you know, she came home one day this winter and she had gone to try out for the wrestling team at the middle school and she was going to be the wrestling manager. And I was like, what, you have to try out to be a manager, but okay, whatever. Well, she came home from that and she said, mom, dad, I want to wrestle. And my husband was a wrestler through college and we were like, what? Like, no, no way, not doing it, not even going to happen. And she stomps upstairs and I hear her throwing things around and in my old brain, you know, I went right to my trigger spot, you know, because she knows that pushed my buttons. I'm like, how dare you? You know, like thinking to myself, you should be grateful. What are you throwing around up there? And instead, as I was going up the stairs to her bedroom, I was like, Jessica, you are triggered right now. Like you've got to breathe before you walk into that room and you've got to notice and not judge her behavior. And I walked in, I took a breath and I just looked at her and I said, you seem really upset right now. What's going on? And it was like the attitude melted away and she just shifted herself to a more calm state. And we had a great conversation that then I was like, oh crap, she really had some good reasons why she wanted to do this. And, and I was like, okay, well, you've won me over. You got to win dad over, you know? And so I feel like those skills just help me not just, you know, everywhere, everywhere I go. Like I, like I said, my old brain, that would have been an ugly confrontation between my daughter and I, and it didn't have to be, you know? And so just, recognizing it when it's happening and then be able to change it. And I think the empathy too, that you have for others in the world and in your day-to-day -day interactions, you look at them differently. So if somebody's being rude to a checker in the checkout line at the store or to the waitress, you know, I kind of look at them now and go, wow, what's going on in their life that is mm -hmm. causing that, you know, instead of just being like, Oh, well, that's just really rude. So with parents that come into the school, you know, when they're angry or they're upset and you're just like, wow, you got a lot going on. What, tell me about that. What can I do to help you? And it automatically like dis, disengages, I don't know, like disarms that anger and that hostility. And I'm like, what if we did this more often in the world? Like <laughs> how much better might our world be if we all met each other with love and positive intent instead of judging and negative intent? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing the stories. Um, and, and it always strikes me that that's the real privilege, really, isn't it, of working with some of these children is that it just pushes us to be better people and um, see the world differently. Um, all that self-awareness sounds amazing, Jessica. It also sounds exhausting. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you take care of your staff? You know, what have you got in place at the school to um, take care of them? That's an awesome question, and I'm going to be really honest here. So we're just um, figuring out we've got to do a better job of that. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Um, 
you, you know, one of the sessions I went to when I was at the Resilience Conference in Kansas City just a few weeks ago was on self-care. And initially, I wasn't going to go. I was going to go to some policy things because, again, I was thinking, how do I help move this forward at a district level? And um, when Jim Sporleader shared his own vulnerability about his own personal crash with um, not taking care of yourself, like working so hard to meet everybody else's needs, I thought I really need to pay attention to this and slow down a little bit and um, found some really valuable information that we've brought back just in the last last week to our faculty, um, helping them try to identify activities they can do that last two to five minutes during their workday, um, as many as 10 of them. So ways that they can help calm themselves so that their window of tolerance isn't getting shorter and shorter and shorter all day. And then, you know, they might keep it together here, but then they go home and they take it out on their spouse or their own children. Um, so we are collectively right now working on identifying how can we um, do that within our day-to-day -day work? And then I think the other piece that um, kind of resonates with me right now is just thinking about the opportunity for staff to connect with other staff is huge. So whether, you know, the safety that they feel like they can tell somebody, hey, I'm in the emotional state right now, like this, I can't have the conversation right now, or I need somebody to come tap out with me right now. Mm -hmm. I had a teacher today in fifth grade that she was like, I need a break right now because we've had a, we had a pretty interesting situation this morning and knowing that that's not a sign of weakness and I'm not judging you and your peers aren't going to judge you. If you need to say, I need a minute, like I got to go take a walk outside or I need to call my spouse or I'm going to FaceTime my kid. Um, that's okay. And so making sure that we take more time to do that and then even connecting outside of our own building. So like taking people to, different conferences and connecting with mm -hmm. educators in different um, school districts within our state or in different areas of the country. Um, I was able to, you know, last summer meet some folks from New Zealand. I'm like, it, it's, I think that reaffirms the work. And when it's hard to carry the flag some days, it's like you remember those conversations that you had with people or I'm able to send a quick text or a, a tweet out to um, James and Derby Hills and say, hey, I'm struggling today with this. Like, what ideas do you have or how can you help me? I think those are the pieces that when you're feeling weak or you're feeling tired, being able to surround yourself with like-minded people that can help lift you up and help you run that positive self-talk in your own head mm. and don't give the negative any more than 1% of your time or your thought um, are going to be huge things that we're going to continue to work on. Mm, yeah. Thank you for that. And and it, it is a challenging kind of role, really. And the piece about connecting is so important because I think I know Kai talks about this quite a lot. You feel quite isolated, even as a classroom teacher within your own school, I think. So that's such an important thing and such a gift that you give teachers, I think, that they can connect. Um, so what are you currently curious about in your work, Jessica? What um, questions do you have in your mind at the moment? There's like... Yeah, we could write a novel on the things that, like, oh, how does this work? Or how do I do this? Um, so right now, some of the biggest pieces, like I said, self-care is huge. Um, and that's something I feel like I need to be doing more reading and thinking about so I can better help my people with that. I need to help myself with that, let's be honest. Um, if my husband were here, he would tell you that. Um, so I think the self-care piece is huge. But we're also, as a faculty, um, really talking about school redesign. And it's a really interesting concept. So um how do we, how, if we could create school to be anything we wanted it to be, what would it look like? And so really thinking out of the box of like even traditional grade level structures, you know, based upon age or based upon um, standards, you know, this is at this grade level, but like 
really looking at better meeting the needs of the whole child. I feel like we're doing a great job on the path that we're on right now with the social emotional piece. We definitely will continue to refine that and connect with others and work to improve. But then when we look at the whole system, how are we really set up to celebrate the brilliance of every child and how do we maximize our system to focus on their strengths and not their deficits because we run very much on a deficit model. You're not good at this, so you're going to do more of that. And that breeds that negative um, sense of self-esteem and things like that in children. So right now, that's kind of the big thing that we are starting to plow through and think about, read about, look at other people's models and connect with other schools and other is a state country um, worldwide. <laughs> What's happening in, in places of the world that are maybe being more successful than we are and what could we create if we were given the opportunity to do so? So um, and thankfully, we're in a state with the Commissioner of Education right now that has given us um, the blessing to do that, and our school district is really looking to embrace that, and at Logan Avenue, we're all about that now. We've seen the success we've had, and we just want to continue to help our children and our families grow. That's excellent. This has been really inspiring and honest, and thank you so much, Jessica. Um, I was really struck by... Um, the strength and vulnerability that you show to your staff and the honesty, I think, you know, just even saying to them, you know, we're on this journey together. And so much of that is what we require of students being with us really um, as educators. And so it's, it's really powerful stuff really um, about how you can make a change in the system. Um, Kay, did you have any final questions or comments for Jessica? I need to say thank heavens. <laughs> thank heavens that there's, you know, people like yourself and I know there's lots of principals doing the right thing and it's just, yeah, and again, you know, I mean, especially being the leader, you you know, you have to have your superwoman suit on, that's for sure, to, to lead it and, and be brave enough to go, hey, there's a whole system that I don't think is working, so we're going to do something a little bit differently like okay <laughs> ready yeah, one two three jump <laughs> yeah lots so of courage wonderful yeah terrific thank you jessica was there any last bits of information you wanted to share with people or just even some details about how people can get in touch with you or any of that sort of thing yeah i just i want to say thank you to you all for the opportunity first of all to share today um it was kind of one of those, again, moments where I was like, what? This is so exciting. I, I, I will take every opportunity I can get to share. Um, and, you know, thank the people that I feel like have given to the permission, um, like our commissioner in Kansas, um, I think Jim Sporleader and Becky Bailey, the people that were out there, you know, kind of blazing the path and have done the research to help us try to navigate this in the school systems. I think that's pretty phenomenal. Um, and then as far as being able to reach me, um, I am available via email. I work on a 12-month contract, so that's the beauty of I work all summer long, um, and things are winding down here for us shortly, so I'll be even more available. So um, email would be a great way to reach me. Um, people can call here to Logan Avenue School, too. We have secretary here. Um, our phone number at the school is 620-341-2264, and my email is really easy. It's just jessica.griffin at usd253.net. Great. We'll put all those details up um, on the website. Jessica, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. Um, best of luck with everything, and I hope we can keep in touch. 
Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. That was our interview with Jessica Griffin. To get access to the links and resources mentioned in the interview, please visit www.tipbs.com. If you are enjoying listening to our show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.